All right, we're looking at Exodus 20, verses 18 through 24. And this is immediately following the 10th commandment. These are the next words that we have. And this is God's word. Let's give our attention to it. It says, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me And sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make make me an altar of stone, you shall not build, build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall and you shall not go up by steps to the altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray before we consider it further. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you would speak to us, and we pray that you would do that now, that you would be with us by your Holy Spirit, that you would would work inside of us, that you would do what your word has said it will do, which is to go out and accomplish its purposes. God, we need that to happen. We need you to do that. And we ask it expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, one of my favorite TV shows. Um, is that, all right, so I'm a little rattled now all of a sudden. Is that, the, is that the text that you have in your bulletin? I went farther. My fault. That's, that, there it is. Now I'm not confused. Okay. All right, so uh, now, sermon, start. One of my favorite TV shows, and has been for, I don't know, five or six years, however long it's, long it's been on, uh, is a show called Castle. Anybody uh, familiar with this? Okay, a few of you. It's your what? It's your grandmother's favorite show. Lovely. Okay. Says a lot about me and your grandmother. All right, so on Castle's 100th episode, which actually also aired on April 1st, April Fool's Day a couple years ago, one of the best episodes, Right. Um, so the basic premise, uh, the main character is a guy named Rick Castle, that's the name, and he follows around this NYPD uh, detective, murder detective, and so that you know, they solve crimes and such, murder, murder mystery deal. Uh, so on the April Fool's 100th episode, uh, basically Castle's in his uh, high-rise apartment, and he's looking across, across the way, and he sees in another building, he sees a murder uh, committed, right? He witnesses a murder, and so he tells his girlfriend, uh, NYPD murder detective, and they go and you know try to investigate it. But there's there's no evidence of a crime. But he's sure of what he saw, 
And so he begins to try to un, you know, unravel it himself, figure out what's going on. And so the whole episode is him trying to figure it out. And so eventually uh, his girlfriend goes over there, the, the police officer, she goes over there to uh, try to interact with this suspect, at least according to her boyfriend. And he's watching through binoculars across the way. And basically the guy grabs her, you know, attacks her, pulls her into his, and then the lights go out and he can't see anything. So his you know, girlfriend has been abducted by this whom he thinks to be a murderer. So he races over there and he kicks in the door. And when he bursts into the room, surprise, it's all of his friends. And what he realizes is that his friends have staged this elaborate hoax just for him. They staged the murder you know, pretended that they didn't know about the whole bit because that's, ex- that, that's right up his alley. He, he, he ate it up. And so they, the, the show did this great job in that moment when he, when he walks in the room and he realizes that it was all his friends. It does a great job of letting it just hang there for a second because he's at a crossroads. Because he realizes on the one hand that... All of his friends have done this. They've gone to great length just because, uh, was it his birthday? I guess it was his birthday, right? They did it just for him because they love him. And on the other hand, he thought, his, <laughs> he thought that there was a murder that was not going to be solved and then that his girlfriend just was killed, right? So he stands at this crossroads of how am I going to react to this? And it just hangs there. And boy, I mean, if you're, y'all are probably a lot better folks than I am. That tension would be tough, right? My friends love me, but I'm really upset. How's he going to react? And in in some small way, very small way, I think there's a sense in which, having studied the law of God and the Ten Commandments, we're at a very similar uh, crossroads. How are you going to react to the law? The law of God can be this very um, polarizing, in a sense, thing. And when it comes into your life, it is going to force you to react to it. So which way are you going to go? What's your reaction going to be? And so uh, in this passage, basically what we get to see is Israel's response to the law. We see Israel uh, have, hear the law of God, hear the Ten Commandments for the first time, and we see their response to it. And so we're going to look at it a little bit uh, to, beg- to try to figure out how should we respond to and live with the law of God as we go forward. So three things I want to look at tonight. One... Uh, it, it all centers around fear, and I think you'll see why. First, I want to look very quickly at responses to the law that we should be afraid of, ways that we should not respond. Secondly, we'll look at fearing a holy God. And thirdly, we'll look at fearing a merciful God. Okay, so first, responses that we should fear. As we're thinking about what is it going to look like for us to react or respond to the law of God, the Ten Commandments. How should we respond? I think one of, the, one of the first things I want to do is look very quickly at ways that we should not respond. 
And now look, obviously this is not in the text, and that can be a dangerous thing, but I think here it's appropriate. Um, basically two ways. Uh, one way, one response to the law that we should fear, that we should be afraid of and avoid, is essentially looking at God's law and thinking, um, either thinking, I, I can't keep that, so what does it matter? Or just ignoring it altogether. Basically, looking at the Ten Commandments, the law of God that comes in and says, you know, you should love the Lord your God only, you know, not make idols, on and on. One response that we should be afraid of is if we see our hearts basically look and say, it's not that big a deal. What does it matter? What's the point? Um, there's, not much, uh, there's not much sense in worrying about it because I can't keep it, right? Maybe you listened this semester and you, and you heard us talk about how it really aims at your heart and you can't keep it and say, so yeah, what's the point? I'll live however I, I want to live. But hopefully, if you have been with us, you know that really every commandment we saw, what we've seen is that the law of God is given as, as really a, a, in a sense, a blueprint to the beautiful life. It's how we're built to live. And if we go against the law of God, look, whether you believe it or not, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're whatever, if you go against the law of God, it will necessarily bring dysfunction in your life. Your life will necessarily come undone and unraveled. Right? Just take, just take lying, right? That we shouldn't bear false witness. If you throw that out the window and you begin to create truth for other people, create reality for other people, and you're not trustworthy, you're gonna, your relationships are going to crumble. You're going to more and more find yourself isolated and by yourself and withdrawn because people can't trust you. You're going to come unraveled. You're going to dehumanize yourself. So we just, we just can't look at the law and, and sort of shuck it, right? Punt. Say, I can't keep it, so what's the point? Uh, the second response to the law that, uh, that I think we could tend to think is this, and, and this probably hits closer to home for us, is to look at the law and think, okay, I can do that. To hear, to hear the details of the law of God, right? Even how it gets in our hearts and say, okay, I can do that. All I need to do is buckle down a little bit harder this week. He's right. He made some good applications and I've kind of gotten away from that, you know, uh, treating my friends that way or thinking that way. And so this week I'm going to buckle down and, you know, sort of lace up my boots and, you know, I'm going to tighten down and I'm going to get it right this week. I need to get after it, right? Because really that's going to result in one of two things. On the one hand, you're going to take the law and diminish it, sort of narrow it down so that you can actually begin to think that you're keeping it. And you're going to essentially become a Pharisee. If you're not familiar with that, it's basically the people in the Bible in the New Testament that thought that they were doing a great job of keeping God's law. And they ended up, they, they looked down on everybody else, they condescend, and they're very self-righteous. Why? Because you think you're doing it, right? You look and you say, I'm going to buckle down, and really more and more, you're, you think you're getting it right. It's either going to end up like that, or you're going to do that for a little while, and you're going to realize that you can't keep the law, and you're going to end up in the first position and say, forget it, and burn out. 
So what should it look like? It's going to lead us to our second point, which is fearing a holy God. What is the right response to the law? Well, actually, it's what we see here in our text. It's what we see from the Israelites. Um, They don't get a lot of things. Israel doesn't typically get things right in the Bible, but there's a sense in which they get this one very right. Um, Look, if you go back and read, uh, the Israelites begin, they begin their sort of conversation with God right up next to the mountain in chapter 19. Uh, God warns them not to touch the mountain lest they die, and and they're very close. But then what we just read in, in Exodus 20, they end up a long way away. So why do they run away? And the, the answer is basically because they see two things really clearly. In a sense, all of a sudden. They see the utter holiness of God. And that causes them to see their own sinfulness. They come, they come up face to face with the sheer holiness of God. And it causes them to see themselves. Right, just, all right, so just think about the scene that, yeah, just think about this scene. Israel has been, they've been toted out of Egypt. They've been slaves for hundreds of years. God leads them out, you know, across the Red Sea, the whole bit, you know, buries Pharaoh's army, the whole bit. And here they are, they're in front of this mountain with the God that has brought them out, borne them out on eagle's wings, as he says. Uh, And then verse 5 says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And then in verse 8, we read this, All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So the God that saves them brings them out, and he says, I'm going to be your God. You'll be my people. And they essentially say, that's great. And he says, look, um, there, there, there's going to be terms to the covenant, right? I'm going to love you. And, and they say, we'll do whatever you say. And then, and then he shows up in his holiness and he reveals his law. And they end up way over there. They're overwhelmed by it. Why? Because they get a, they get a first-hand front-row seat to just how holy God is. And it blows them away. They see God in all of His glory. How, how, how absolutely other and different God is. And their first and really only thought is, we're done for. We're done. They're overwhelmed. Because they know that they've broken that law that they just heard in every way you can imagine. And all of that, all of that power and might and, and fury ought to be directed right at them. And so they run the other way. Right? You, it's actually a common situation that you see all throughout Scripture. Right? Pretty regularly, when God, when God shows up in some way, Typically, one of the first things he or either his angel has to say is what? Don't be afraid. Why? Because it's terrifying. It's terrifying to see God in his holiness. Probably the most vivid example is in Isaiah, Isaiah 6. Isaiah, you know, in some, some way is basically in the throne room of God. 
And he sees his angel saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as best I recall, the first words out of Isaiah's mouth are, Woe unto me. He basically says, I'm done. I am nothing like this God. He is so perfect. I'm nothing like an ought to be blotted out. Basically, he's gonna, he comes unraveled. Um, yeah, actually, uh, I read one commentator on that Isaiah passage that, that basically says that word, in a sense, could be... Uh, Isaiah basically says, I'm coming unraveled. I'm coming undone at the seams. When he sees his life in himself in front of God's holiness. And so Israel knows that they're caught. Uh, I, I think I've told a couple of you this, or maybe some of you this illustration, the story, but when I was in college, a long time ago, took a business speech class, it was a small class, and in, in that class was one of our linebackers that played for Ole Miss. Uh, he, he played a very brief stint in the, in, in the NFL. So he's one of the best linebackers in the, in the SEC at the time. He was an, a beast of a man, right, to say the least. And so in the small class, we got somewhat acquainted, right? We, you know, you'd chit-chat a little bit. And on the last day of class, he comes in, and he said that he wanted to give his speech first, if that was okay with everybody. And so I was sitting across from him, and I, and I said, I was totally kidding, right? And I said, well, actually, I was kind of thinking I would give my speech first. So he kind of looked at me. He's kind of confused, like, certainly, you're not really arguing with me. And uh, kind of shrugged my shoulders, and I said, uh, I'll arm wrestle you for it. And he said, he kind of, you know, he's starting to catch on, like, okay, he's not, he's not serious. He's like, he said, okay, that's fine. And so we, you know, he puts his arm up. I put my hand up next to his. And when he, when he puts his hand over my hand, not kidding you, my hand disappears. When I feel his hand and his arm, I'm, I promise you, I'm not exaggerating. It scared me. I don't mean like, oh. Like, right, so obviously I had no illusions that I was going to win. Right? I'm totally, I mean, this guy. I knew he was better than me, but now all of a sudden I realized, no kidding, I had this thought. He could break my hand on this table, no doubt. I mean, I sincerely believe that if, if, if we said go and he wanted to, he could slam my hand down so hard it would break it. And so I look at him and I say, you know I'm kidding, right? <laughs> And he smiled and, you know, nodded, like, okay, good, I'm not going to be in the ER in a minute. <laughs> now, look, that's a somewhat silly and certainly a tiny illustration, but I, I think it serves the purpose, right? In that moment, you know, I thought I knew, but then when I come literally, you know, face to face, when I feel that, I realize I'm not like you at all. Like, I'm not even in the same realm. I'm not even the same planet as this guy. Right? Like, th this is a whole different deal, and I'm about to come undone. Right? When you're faced with real strength, you begin to see how weak you are. And that's what Israel has seen here, and that's what you and I have to see. When you come to the law of God, you and I actually have to come unraveled at the seams. We have to come face to face with it and realize. We're, we're done for. 
Yeah, the law has to come into our lives and, and cause us to realize that we're far worse than we ever thought. Right? That, that we're not in any position to bargain with God. That any sort of um, thoughts of like, okay, okay, I get it. The law is bigger than I thought, so I really need to quit. Uh, I really need to quit looking at pornography. And I really need to quit uh, not telling the truth and cheating in class. And I'm really going to start giving more money and uh, you know, showing up at RUF or church or Bible study more. I'm, I'm, I've really got to get serious about this. The law's got to come in and just blow those thoughts away. The only way you can interact with the law of God is if it comes in and first and foremost says, your efforts aren't going to do anything. You know, it's going to be like me arm wrestling that guy. Like, don't even bother. You know, we've got to see that our, our self-righteousness comes apart at the seams. So we, we have a... Uh, our, our response should be f- to fear a holy God. Thirdly, and finally, our response should be fearing a merciful God. So yes, the law has to break us. Right? The holiness of God has to show us our sinfulness. Um, but it can't stop there. Or, or maybe better said, um, thank goodness that it doesn't stop there. Right? That there's actually very good news about all this. Right? We also see in this passage that God is most merciful. I want to look at that sort of in two ways. I want you to see that God is a mediator and he's a substitute. We've talked about this before. A lot of this is very similar to our first discussion some, what, 13 weeks ago. But we have a God that allows us a mediator. So the response of the Israelites, really, it's almost funny. It would almost be funny if it weren't true, right? They start off very close to the mountain like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll keep your law. And we appreciate what you've done for us. And then he reveals himself and how holy he is and his glory and and. And they end up way over there. And so much so that they look, uh, you know, they essentially look at Moses and they say, no, 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 you go talk to him. We're done. We're done talking to him. You go. Because if we go talk to him, we're going to die. And again, Israel's actually gotten it right. They realize they, they, can't, they can't deal with this God. And so they... They, they desire, and actually God is gracious, to give them somebody that will go deal with God for them. A mediator, right? It made me think about, so this is sort of cop show illustrations tonight. It made me think, you know, pick your cop show where they get the you know, murder suspect in and they, they're asking him questions, interrogating him or her. And, of course, you know, they're, they're lying about it. Until they real, you know, then they pull out that last piece of evidence where the the suspect realizes they're busted, right? Like slam dunk case. And what what's always the next words out of their mouth? I want my lawyer, right? They're fine to talk for a little bit until they realize that they're for sure caught, and then they're done. I don't want to talk anymore. I need somebody to come and stand in my place and talk for me because I'm in trouble, right? And that is a little bit. In a sense, almost exactly like what, what we see here in this passage and what God gives us. He gives us a mediator. 
right? When we realize we are absolutely caught in our sin, just who we are, we need, we're busted. We need somebody to speak for us, and God allows that. And here it's Moses. But Moses is really just this pointer to the mediator, right? He's really just a pointer to Jesus Christ. That, there, that, that we have somebody that will go and deal with God for us because we can't. We have somebody that will go and walk into that thick darkness because we can't do it ourselves. And so very simply, what does that mean for us? It means that the, when the law unravels us, when we look at ourselves honestly, and we realize that our hearts do murder other people. I really do love just about everything else more than I love God. I really do hate other people. I'm not faithful. I'm not sexually pure. Whatever it is, when that unravels us, what it should do is it it should drive us to the mediator, to Jesus. And then, and then and only then we can begin to see what Moses says in verse 20, which is, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Because even though God is holy, 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 he lets somebody go for us. In the second half of this, we see that Jesus, we have a mediator, but we also have a substitute. We also have a substitute. Right, did you notice the subject matter uh, that God discusses with Moses? So Moses goes back as the mediator, right? He goes and he talks to God. And the first thing that God talks to him about is what? Altars. The first thing that he talks to the mediator about is sacrifice. And what you see, what you see is that we have a God who accepts a substitute. That Jesus is the mediator... He was and He is the mediator. And he, he is the mediator because He's our substitute. He doesn't just go on our behalf, right, and speak for us. He goes as us. He goes and He deals with this holy God in our place. Entirely in our place. Right, we see all this come together in Hebrews 12. If you're taking notes, Hebrews 12, 18 through 24 kind of puts all this together for us. It actually references Exodus 20, which is what we've been reading about, the terrifying scene on Mount Sinai, the whole bit. And, and then it tells us that we don't have the old covenant anymore, but we get to come to Jesus. We don't come to the mountain, we come to Jesus, who is the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a, that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Basically what it says is that that Jesus Christ is our mediator and our substitute. And that the way he's our that he goes he goes to God and he spills his blood so that ours doesn't have to be spilled. It would be like the lawyer in that situation, right? I realize I'm caught. I want my lawyer because I can't handle this on my own. It would be like your lawyer that shows up and he pleads guilty for you. And then he proves that you are guilty. And then he says, he says and does, take your punishment for you. 
He takes the death penalty himself. He doesn't just do this on your behalf or speaking for you. He does it in your place. And he does it because he loves you. That's a good lawyer. It's a good savior. It was his innocent blood that was spilled in our place. Right? That's the beauty in the heart of the gospel. And look, because of that, well, let me say this. That's offered to you absolutely for free. Right? We could never go before God in our, with ourselves because we, we would be unraveled. And so Jesus goes to the cross and he unravels himself. He comes undone for you. And he does it because he loves you. Not because he had to. Right? There's that song that we sing that says, it was my sin that held him there. And that's, to be honest, in one sense that's true, but that's not really true. It wasn't your sin that held him there. Because he, he didn't have to do that. It was his love for you that held him there. He held himself, he put himself under the wrath of God and held himself there because he loves you. And he doesn't want you to bear that. And look, let me end with this thought. Sort of how, how do we deal with the law going forward? Because it's because of that truth that Jesus has taken all of the punishment for us. It's because of that truth that you and I can actually begin to try and, and keep the law. Right? It means that you and I can look at our lives with, with gut-level judgment day kind of honesty. And we can see the junk that's really there. Why? Because it doesn't condemn us anymore if you're in Christ. You can actually take honest inventory of your life and your heart and see how, how disgusting it really is because you're not going to pay the penalty for it. And you can look at that and then you, because it's been paid for, you can actually dig into the law and try to keep it. You can see your heart really is that murderous. And you can, with, with God working in you, it's called sanctification, right? You can begin to work at keeping His law. And you can know that you're going to fail. And when you do fail, you can know that, in obviously, one sense, it's okay. Because Jesus has paid for that. And the more you see that, the more what that does is it drives you, as your failure drives you back to Jesus' grace. Jesus' grace is going to drive you right back to the law because you're going to want to, you're going to fall more and more in love with a Savior like that. And so that's going to push you back to the law, but not out of, um, not out of duty, but out of gratitude. I want to be like that guy. I want to love Jesus. I want to be like him. And so I'm going to study his law. And I'm going to work hard at it. And I'm going to fail. And I'm going to realize that he loves me anyway. And that's going to push me right back. And that's this, this beautiful spiral or cycle that, again, that we call sanctification that's going to go on until he brings us into glory. And that's how we deal, that's how we relate to the law. Because of his grace. Because he's paid it for us. It's free. We get to take it. And I hope that you'll take it. Even tonight. That's an invitation to you. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we have, uh, we have talked about things that are, 
no doubt far beyond us, as we just begin to contemplate your holiness. Uh, Father, I pray that you would give us a true sense of that. Give us a true sense of our sin and, and a vivid sense, a vivid taste in the reality of how much you love us, how you've stood in our place, and how because of that we can actually, we can let the law in. We can try to keep it and we can fail. Because you're good. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.